2: Today, we're speaking about bipolar disorder. 5% of the population suffers from bipolar disorder, which is about 350 million people suffering worldwide. Our guest today is Michael Pipich. He's a psychotherapist and the author of an important new book, Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. Michael is going to demystify this disorder for us today. He's going to be talking about diagnosis, medication, fears of medication, acceptance, holding on to creativity, successful life management, and the impact of this disorder on family members. Michael Pippich is a national speaker on bipolar disorder and was selected as a collaborating investigator by the American Psychiatric Association for the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. He's been featured on radio and in print media and is the founder of BipolarNetwork.com. Michael Pippich, it's my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live
3: to be with you today and hello to all your
2: listeners as well. Thanks so much. Let's start out by asking, what do you mean when you say owning bipolar? Well, a couple of things. First of all,
3: uh, it's important to understand that there is no cure for bipolar disorder. It's a mental illness um, that it really is lifelong. and um, But in spite of that, it can be safely managed with the right treatment throughout that person's lifetime. In owning bipolar people can learn how to take control of it and enjoy a full and satisfying life in spite of having a, a bipolar disorder. Mm. And, and, and the other part to it, Suzanne, is that it, I believe it's important for patients and their families not to necessarily expect to, uh, for treatment professionals to do all the work for them. Uh, there's so much misidentification uh, and mistreatment that goes along with bipolar disorder that patients and families, I believe, need to know what symptoms to look for and how to advocate for their own uh, psychological care in uh, collaboration with those treatment uh, professionals. So when, when you own bipolar disorder, you become an advocate for long-term treatment success, and that sense of empowerment, I think, is really ultimately what, um, what uh, the, the product of owning bipolar is all about.
2: And I, could, I couldn't agree more because in the many years I've practiced, Michael, those who are dealing with bipolar disorder and they're some of the most creative, intelligent people I've ever met, when they know it and own it, they will call me and say, I think. I've just been triggered by this situation. So as you say, they know the triggers, they know themselves, and they become real collaborators in terms of life management for sure. Let's give our listeners a picture. When we talk, we it's so much used in the media and so many known people have bipolar disorder. What would a person look like or be dealing with if they were diagnosed with bipolar 1 disorder, for instance?
3: Sure. So, bipolar 1 disorder, um, and then the, uh, the the reason it's called 1 is because there's bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. And then another uh, kind of variant of bipolar disorder known as cyclothymia. sometimes people almost... Um, Half jokingly call it bipolar three, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, specifically bipolar one. I think sort of represents what most people think about when they think about bipolar dis- disorder, um, and the the. But the true diagnostic of uh, bipolar one has to do with simply one uh, episode of mania in that person's lifetime, and that's really all one has to have to to have the diagnosis of bipolar 1 disorder, one episode of mania. And even though bipolar, the term itself, refers to mania and depression, two uh, very distinct uh, poles on an emotional spectrum, again, bipolar 1 only requires one lifetime episode of, of mania. And a person has that if they're in the middle of it or they've had it recently or they've had it years ago uh, and have not had uh, another manic episode, with or without any kind of treatment intervention <clears throat> along the way, uh, they qualify, if you will, for the bipolar one disorder. And so what does that look like? A manic episode is uh, defined by at least seven consecutive days of uh, uh, extreme sense of um, self-importance, extreme self-image, what we call grandiosity, uh, either a very euphoric type of mood, or um, mood that that I describe as dysphoric, which is high levels of irritability and agitation. But very often people will report that they feel absolutely terrific, they feel great and unstoppable. Uh, so the mood is very extreme on that particular end of the of the spectrum. And along with that, the symptoms also include uh, what uh, we call decreased need for sleep. And that's very different from insomnia. Insomnia is when you try to sleep and you can't, or you go to sleep and you wake up and you can't fall back to sleep. People in a a state of mania uh, typically talk as if they don't want to sleep. They want to get as much done as they can, and they do as much as they can, uh, and compromise that need uh, for rest. Then along with that, you may see uh, pressured speech, somebody talking very rapidly, uh, and and very often they're difficult to interrupt. They have what we call racing thoughts, a variety of different kinds of thoughts that seem to kind of just cram up all at once. And along with that, they can feel as if they're being very thoughtful, very creative, uh, sort of on a roll with all kinds of terrific ideas. And then uh, I think... Uh, the, 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 the one symptom, if you will, that typically draws the most attention to bipolar, uh, and particularly mania, is um, a period of time where they um, uh, engage in very impulsive behaviors, what we call functional consequences with potential of high risk, um, such as sh- going on shopping sprees, uh, going on alcohol or drug, uh, drug binges, Uh, perhaps uh, a spree of uh, sexual indiscretions. Uh, uh, Sometimes uh, they can get in their car and get on the highway and and just uh, drive uh, to excess. And so it's a very excessive and and very troubling and disturbing and potentially dangerous set of circumstances that can threaten uh, their health, their relationship well-being, their finances, or even get them into some kind of legal trouble. Mm -hmm. And that seven days or more uh, <clears throat> is is just sort of the threshold. Sometimes people in this state can go many days or weeks uh, at that very high level of activity, and 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 create a, a, a tremendous amount of personal stress and stress for people around them. Now, the depression side, uh, even in bipolar one, can also be very dark and desperate, and is a an extreme contrast to the behavior that we see in mania, and uh, sometimes that depression can be so bad as to be you know, um, very dangerous and potentially very suicidal. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the most extreme form of bipolar one, it's not always present, but uh, there may also be symptoms of psychosis, including um, uh, auditory or visual hallucinations and paranoid or delusional thinking. So it can be a very intense and, um, and, and very uh, disruptive and... Very pernicious kind of uh, disorder when when people are in those states.
2: Mm, that's such a thorough explanation. And and how about the other side, the depression, the bipolar two?
3: Right. So bipolar two is uh, diagnosed as at least one episode of hypomania, which I'll describe, and one episode of major depression. So bipolar one. You don't have to have the depression, although it's very common with the disorder, but for a bipolar one, you only need that, that mania piece, if you will, to have the diagnosis. But in bipolar two, you do need both one episode historically of hypomania and one of major depression, and major depression is very, very serious. It's not just the blues that we all get from time to time, uh, but it is a very clinically um, understood um, and, um, and, and very... Um, potentially, again, dangerous sort of place to be, Uh, and it lasts at least a period of two weeks. Now, hypomania is all of the symptoms that we talked about with mania itself. But the reason we call it hypomania, and literally that means under mania, so it's sort of a zone under uh, mania, is not so much that it's kind of a lesser form of mania. Sometimes people think of it that way. But it's typically marked by uh, fewer days in in um, succession, and uh, specifically at least four days, and can be longer. Um, and but because of the shorter duration, it tends to have fewer consequences, as you may see in bipolar one. But the reason we don't like to think necessarily anymore that bipolar two is a lesser form of bipolar disorder is again because of depression and that hypomania itself can be a very destructive place to be as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that's interesting about the DSM with respect to bipolar 2 is that it seems to suggest that a person can have a history of hypomania as long as they don't have depression, they don't have that kind of mood disorder. And I kind of think it gives a nod, so to speak, to people who are uh, very creative uh, and and somewhat hyperactive individuals by nature, and um, and can function and sometimes uh, very well occupationally at least um, at that level, having those kind of brief periods of hypomania. But when it comes to bipolar II, it's um, not always as recognizable because of the periods <clears throat> of um, of uh, distress that are shorter in duration, and also because people can go on many years. Um, appearing to be quite functional, even though their mood swings uh, may be compromising their their personal, physical, or mental health or their relationships along the way.
2: All right. Wow. It's so very, very clear. Thank you, Michael. Now, one of the things, with that in mind as our backdrop, one of the things you say from the beginning of your book is bipolar disorder is no one's fault. Uh, what causes bipolar disorder?
3: Right. It's nobody's fault because of its foundations. And it it is a genetic um, disorder. That means it's hereditary. It's passed uh, along uh, genetic lines uh, from uh, person to person within the family. So if you have a parent or a grandparent that has had bipolar disorder, you yourself or your siblings may be at risk for having bipolar disorder. Now, you, you can... I suppose you can get mad at your ancestors for <laughs> passing a gene along, but uh, but I don't believe that it's anybody's fault. It's it's um, it's coded essentially in a person's DNA in a in a complex way, but what is I think a simple way to think about it is that it affects how the brain develops specifically for emotional regulation, mm-hmm. and so it, again, if you have that. Genetic will be called predisposition, you're predisposed to bipolar. Then certain kinds of internal or external catalysts or triggers at some point in life uh, typically push, if you will, those symptoms of bipolar disorder, of mania and depression or hypomania and depression um, uh, towards how we see bipolar behaviorally uh, in in a person's life. And typically we see that uh, prominently, uh, perhaps in adolescence or early adulthood very commonly. Uh, We also see it um, uh, in women who have a a postpartum uh, condition and an underlying uh, predisposition to bipolar disorder. So they might start to have bipolar mood swings as an effect of pregnancy or childbirth and all the hormones and stress and so forth that may um, kind of bring that disorder out Mm-hmm. Uh, but bipolar disorder, because it's genetic, has been with that person uh, since the very first uh, moments of their development. And it's not something that goes away. We have no cure, as I mentioned before. But, but I think it just uh, it, it demands two things, that we don't blame anybody for bipolar disorder, but we understand that it needs to be managed and managed well uh, both medically and supportively from the people around that individual, going forward in his or her life,
2: mm. and it's so interesting because in my experience with people, it was very often a, a, a major life circumstance, a stress, um, going away to college for some, the end of an important relationship, the which really triggers the the episode. But as you're saying, one of the one of the messages of this show is it's it's if it's there and it's tripped it's like if that if that circuit breaker is tripped it's it doesn't mean we can't manage it in a way that provides for a fulfilling life and that's what we're going to be talking about we you really set it up for us michael and we're going to take a break and on the other side of this break we're going to be talking about what makes stabilization possible Um, Michael has a three-phase approach to the therapy here. What do we do about medication and being afraid to take medication? So stay with us. We'll be back with much more about owning bipolar disorder.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
4: What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, The Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others guests or people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions tune into on living broadcasting live every thursday at 11 a.m eastern time 8 a.m pacific time on voice america variety
4: every day we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads now there's a show that brings it all back down to earth tune in for today tomorrow's technologies with host jose negron We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron. Live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America
1: Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live.
2: We're speaking with Michael Pippich, His new book, Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Control Bipolar Disorder, Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. Now, part of your approach, Michael, is this three-phase approach. The first step being pre-stabilization, which involves diagnosis and acceptance. And I mentioned at the break to Michael that over the years, I've found that people, they're very hesitant to accept this, to accept the diagnosis. They fear stigma. They fear people at work learn that they were diagnosed with bipolar. They could lose their job. They are very resistant to the idea that it may imply medication. They feel that will curb their creativity. How do you deal with those concerns regarding diagnosis?
3: And those concerns, Suzanne, are very common, first of all. I mean, <clears throat> I really do expect that people do go, go through a period of denial to one extent or another, sometimes to a large extent, sometimes minimally, but it's, it's always present to one extent or another. And I think that that's really a key part in understanding and <clears throat> going forward with the, the treatment for bipolar disorder. So you mentioned the three phases, and if I could just explain what those are. And I think it's really important, not just for treatment professionals to understand, but for the very patients and their families to have an idea of how treatment, how therapy can go, and what to expect as they move forward uh, themselves in, in those phases. It's not just for the patient. It's also for the family, uh, for their awareness uh, for themselves and their loved one as well. So mm-hmm. those three phases, first of all, the pre-stabilization phase, that's the first phase, the stabilization phase, which is number two, and then number three is the post-stabilization phase. So as you can already see, it's, it's centered around the, uh, the medical um, aspect of mood stabilization, and that is uh, through medications or whatever uh, treatments are available to, to help that person, uh, neurologically speaking, uh, through medications to stabilize uh, those uh, swings from mania to depression. And maintain a, a sort of uh, baseline uh, mood zone for them, uh, so that they can better understand themselves and um, and develop uh, an emotional life uh, apart from bipolar disorder. So, in that pre-stabilization phase, uh, again, we expect denial, and that's right around at the time where. Uh, the uh, possibility of bipolar disorder is introduced to patient and family, and the need to further assess for bipolar disorder um, comes in that particular phase. Along with that, we hope to develop a conversation about medication, what I call medication conversation, and um, provide family education and really begin to treat the symptoms of bipolar. So one of the ways to deal with the inevitable Uh, denial that is is brought um, in that phase of bipolar therapy is to sort of break apart the symptoms of bipolar disorder. Because I think, as you suggested in your question, uh, people find some aspects of mania and hypomania to their benefit. At least that's their perception, of course. Right. That they can become very creative, very productive, life of the party, they feel on top of the world, they feel tremendous in, uh, very often in those states. And when they've had that experience of depression, <clears throat> or minimally they've had experiences of non-mania, you know, life doesn't, doesn't taste as delicious
1: <laughs> when, <laughs> when
3: you're feeling down. And, you know, uh, people will often say when they're in a manic state, you know, the colors, the brightness, the, the, the sensory perceptions just become so much clearer and sharper than when they're not in that phase. So, <clears throat> so they find, again, mania to be quite to their benefit to one aspect or another. The importance for people around that individual is sort of to, instead of just saying, hey, you have bipolar disorder, and, uh, and they kind of respond, well, uh, no, I don't, or well, maybe I do, but it's no big deal, and they minimize it to some extent, um, we'll say, okay, um, I understand that there are some aspects of it that are, are that you really enjoy, or at least it keeps you away from depression but let's find maybe some of these parts of what you're going through that are not as healthy. I mean, let's talk about what you do with your finances, perhaps, in this state. How, how do, does your spouse or your mother or father or sibling or loved one, um, how, what's their interpretation of what's going on? What does it feel like when you're depressed? Maybe we can treat your depression or some aspects of sleep impairment um, that uh, that interferes with your life. So you really have to do that individual assessment and in that pre-stabilization phase to find out what aspects of bipolar we can talk about without that person immediately fearing that you're going to take away something that, that they may actually like. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The other part to always be aware of is the social stigma around any mental illness, but particularly with bipolar disorder. And understand that uh, patients and families... Uh, together, fear a diagnosis of bipolar because uh, very often, and and perhaps to one extent or another, this is the 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 reality of today life today. Is that um, you know people would look down on that person um, for somebody to say you know I have a lifelong mental illness. Uh, maybe they have a loved one in their family that can accept that, but what if that person in the future wants to find somebody to fall in love with and have a relationship with? Does she he or she have to? always kind of have this sort of awkward and sometimes uh, awesome type of disclosure to that person. So all of these and more um, are kind of contained in that immediate phase of care, and these are all things that we need to talk about in order to, to sort of begin that treatment process. And if I may, just one thing really quickly, because you talked about creativity, and uh, in particular, a lot of people don't want to give that up. One of the things that we do as we move in, particularly into that stabilization phase is begin to talk about how a person is creative for more reasons than their bipolar disorder. You know, you have to have a skill set, first of all, and you have to be practiced at certain things. I think people rely on mania uh, as the energy, as the fuel for their creative process. But sometimes that is confused with the entirety of what it is to be creative and to produce something. Even though we know that there are famous people that have bipolar disorder, for example, Isaac Newton is believed, was believed to have bipolar disorder, or is now, as we looked historically, believed to have bipolar disorder. But did bipolar disorder make Isaac Newton the great mathematician and physicist? Or did he rely on the energy necessary to, to bring his uh, ideas uh, to the fore? And this is the kind of conversation we need to have with every individual because not every individual is Isaac Newton or Mozart or Van Gogh. They may be uh, somebody who, in the throes of mania, believe that they are those individuals and that they are that creative, when in fact they may not have the skill set or nowhere near the level of ability necessary to really you know, enjoy uh, those experiences.
2: Well, it's such a good point, and it also reflects the fact that you are saying in this book and even you you're demonstrating it to myself and our listeners that you really collaborate in talking and getting to know someone so that it's they don't feel just labeled given a medication and somehow sent away you know your point is such an important one so if someone says i i know that i could write great film scripts, because I had one in my head right before I was hospitalized or right before I started taking the medication. And that's what I mean. That's what the medication does. It takes away my ability to write film scripts. But you're making a very important point. If that person without that manic episode doesn't have the skill or doesn't write film scripts, the, the flash and the feeling is not enough that they had during the manic episode to say they could be successful in that career. So there has to be the existing talent and ability pre-manic episode. But the manic episode, as you said before, can make people feel like they can fly. And you know what? If you've suffered with depression, that's a good feeling. Yes, yeah, so it's a hard—it's yeah. something hard to tease out. But I can hear the way you do it, and how important that would be.
3: Absolutely, and 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 particularly as that person moves from stabilization into post stabilization, that is very typically uh, one of the most important conversations that we have. Um, and and by the way, may I say that you know you brought up um, the the very briefly, I think what what we've done quite a bit with bipolar disorder, certainly uh, in the past uh, 30, 40 years or so since lithium kind of hit the scene and became the gold standard medication for bipolar stabilization. Of course, there are other medications as well available now too, but since then, I think there had been a really push uh, away from, either intentionally or just uh, happenstance, away from uh, the dynamics of that individual in his or her life, and then the context of family and and society and culture that um, is that it just became a meds only approach like I, I remember coming up as a, as a young uh, therapist uh, being told that that uh, therapy talk therapy was really uh, not essential for bipolar; it was about getting them on meds and keeping them there. And that always mm-hmm. bugged me, frankly, you know, because I think there's so much more to it. And, and of course, we see now that that's, that's true. And that really prompted me, among other things, to, to develop the three-phase approach. So when that individual goes from stabilization into post-stabilization, we do talk about their productivity, their creativity, and, and help them uh, to understand that there is perhaps a better way and a more consistent way to organize themselves their thoughts, their their creative process in total, and, and again, develop a means by which they can be productive uh, in a lifelong fashion. Because, well, you know, Suzanne, how many times have we seen celebrities, uh, uh, whether or not we know they actually have a diagnosis of bipolar, but uh, in a very accelerated pace, uh, develop all kinds of success only to to hit a wall and crash right, because right. of their own uh, mental illness, uh, depression, suicide uh, self harm or uh, very often drugs and alcohol right so what we 're trying to do is prevent that and extend that person 's creative ability for as long as they as they can through their lifespan
2: well, one of the things you 're saying is it 's not only that there's much more than medication there 's much more to a person than their diagnosis. Um, and, and that's one of the things that it sounds like your approach helps people not only to put in place the medication, but then to find out all the best of the rest of them and to be able to go forward with that. Um, it's, it's a really important piece. One of the things your book suggests in the um, stabilization and post-stabilization phase is the value of identifying with a psychiatrist that you really trust and a therapist that you really trust. Um, As I mentioned in the break, we had an earlier show, um, Two Bipolar Chicks Surviving Bipolar Disorder, and they underscored, don't stop until you find people. It's like having a team uh, work with you so that you can really navigate life the best way you can. One of the things you mentioned at one point that I thought, well, look at this, you said... Even if you don't stay attached to me as your therapist on a weekly basis, maybe it's monthly, maybe it's every six months, before you decide, hey, I don't need medication anymore, please call me. When I read that, I thought, oh, this is the man to be in therapy with, because you really suggest, (laughs) I'm not going to demand you do something, but just check in with the team before you go off that medication, which is, of course, extremely important. Yeah, really important. Very,
3: very good.: Yes. And can I also add to that the importance yeah, of, of finding treatment professionals familiar with bipolar disorder, and, and uh, you know, and that may vary from community to community, of course. but it's okay to be picky uh, in this or I- any uh, pr- a clinical disorder or any uh, uh, relationship issues or substance abuse or whatever uh, situation you might be dealing with be picky about finding your providers. And again, that may vary from uh, community to community or based on what your personal resources may allow, but but really investigate those individuals and find out um, their expertise and their approach and, and what they're familiar with and how they've treated others uh, in similar situations. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I always remind people is that um, the two-thirds of all people with bipolar disorder have been misdiagnosed. Hmm. And, and among those, about two thirds have been diagnosed with major depression alone and and that's that's a real problem because if you treat bipolar with antidepressant medications alone you can put that person at risk of having a manic episode yes. so it's 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 important not just to find somebody who may advertise that that they treat mood disorders in general but really dig a little bit deeper and find out what their experience and understanding about bipolar disorder is all about and, help and and work collaboratively to construct that treatment team for what you need now but also what you may need going forward in the future sure
2: underscoring that i have worked with my folks to give them the confidence and entitlement to go back to the psychiatrist to say, the side effects make this prohibitive to me, we have to look for something else. And actually now really great psychiatrists, they want that feedback. Um, Rather than just go off a medication, to work again as a team member with the feedback, maybe a few rounds, Michael, until they get it right, uh, is really an important step. One thing I want to mention that I read in your book, it was a case example, and I, I wanted to make sure I was I was reading it correctly. I sort of really liked what I read, and that is one of the people in your examples didn't want to take the medication because they were afraid they'd be asked about taking medication and fired, and you say, I believe... Um, First of all, it's illegal for someone to ask you about what medication you're taking, and second, the chances. Well, in before, the workplace,
3: in the workplace, in, the, in the workplace, just to make sure we understand that, right.
2: Okay, in the workplace, uh-huh. and it's far more likely that if you don't treat the bipolar disorder, that's going to put you at risk for losing the job, not the taking of the medication, but the holding back from taking it because you're, going, you're afraid someone will ask you. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's correct. And, and you know what? That, that example is perhaps more common than, than some may think. Um, I know I mentioned about how people have certain fears about having that, that diagnostic label of bipolar disorder in terms of how other people would think about it. But I've heard that, uh, that one example has, has been presented many times over by different individuals, if my boss finds out about this, you know that's the end of me. <laughs> and and and, I, and I'm used to it now, so I have a way to deal with that. But uh, you know, originally I was very curious, like how would your boss ever find out? You know, and mm-hmm. uh, and it, and, it, and and sometimes you know it might be well, my boss is a very demanding individual and wants to know what I'm doing at every turn, right? Right. Or mm-hmm. Or uh, well, I don't know, but you know how people find out all kinds of things these days, you know, and there may be some reality to that in the age we live in. But you know, first of all, I would say, well, you know, they, nobody can discriminate against you, but obviously that doesn't stop people from from doing things if they if they became apprised of certain things. But but mm. the but the predominant thing, uh, the the fear that that I would think would would be more uh, more obvious and more salient would. If I'm not treated, you know, how am I going to act uh, at work uh, right. with my coworkers, and you know, what kind of consequences would, if not directly uh, with respect to my job, would threaten my health or my relationships or my finances and so forth, which you know means that I would have to miss work and I would have to take care of problems mm. uh, in my personal life, um, but. Yeah, it's the, the, the uh, impulse, if you will, is to fear what other people are going to think or say or going to do just by somehow figuring out you have bipolar disorder or you've been right. labeled with bipolar disorder. And, I, and you know what? It really does to, reflect I, okay, the me, stigma.
2: You know? Yes. let's. We have to take a brief break. I want us to come back to stigma. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're fortunate today. Our guest is Michael Pipich, and he's the um, author of the important new book, Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you
1: finding your frequency? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? Are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live.
2: <clears throat> We're speaking with Michael Pippich. And he's the author of Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. Michael, um, at the other side of the break, we mentioned stigma. And it seems to me that one of the things that terrifies family and those diagnosed is the extraordinary high risk of suicide associated with bipolar disorder. What can you talk to us about with regard to that?
3: Yes, thank you, Suzanne, for bringing that up because I think that that really is is the bottom <clears throat> line um, because we know that that uh, suicide is at least twenty times higher in people with bipolar disorder uh, compared to the general population, at least twenty times higher <clears throat> and uh, and that one fourth of all deaths by suicide um, may be related to bipolar disorder, and that means um, over ten thousand people. In this country alone, in the United States, every year. So it's critical, isn't it, um, to understand bipolar disorder, to do everything we can uh, um, in the professional community, but also among patients and families in our broader communities, to understand what bipolar is, to better identify it, and to, to be active in treating it and not let people wait years and years and years for the right diagnosis and the right treatment interventions. Um, we can save lives, uh, many, many lives, thousands of lives every year, if we do this right.
2: Yes, that's that's what the stabilization offers—the <clears throat> safety from the kind of despair <clears throat> and depression that fuels the suicidal thinking.
3: Yes, absolutely, and, and again, critical. It's it's it, you know, from my point of view, because of that, it's not an option. It's something that we have to do, and and. Anything that we can do as a community, and, um, certainly uh, from your show and what you're, what you're doing and what we can all do collectively to to increase uh, awareness and information, but also let people know that these treatments are available. There's a means by which we can be successful in our work together to help people with bipolar disorder. Um, it, you know, stabilization may not sound like a lot of fun to a lot of people who are, um, you know, accustomed to uh, their mania and enjoy the highs that come with that, but ultimately, it's about saving lives and improving lives so that everybody can thrive together.
2: hmm And that whole idea of having a team and working collaboratively means you—you you just might make the call to the psychiatrist or the or the therapist or ask a family member to do so, etc. So it—it it, it does give you a, a safety net. Uh, One of the things that you do, and you talk about it in the book that I think is so important, is your involvement with family and spouses. You spoke about couple work, uh, because very often the spouses have been mystified and horrified and also very worried about their partners. But one of the things I asked you to read is, you mentioned that when you do run the family groups, you give them a list of reality points about bipolar disorder that they're very appreciative of. I wonder if you could read that list, Michael.
3: Sure, absolutely. So when I do either uh, therapy with those family members or I provide educational groups uh, to the community, which I do here in my, in my hometown of Denver, Colorado, quite frequently, is I let people know, first of all, that bipolar is a genetic disorder. That's nobody's fault, uh, that it can drive impulsivity, substance abuse, and irresponsible and destructive acts, that it can make a good, moral person do very bad things, that it's a disease that can hide and then return without warning, that it can ruin trust and relationships, and that it does uh, happen. Uh, Bipolar is real, but it's not because of a lack of willpower or an absence of love on the part of the person with bipolar disorder. So I think that helps, um, that understanding helps both patients and families together to recognize that we're dealing with a disorder, not a bad person doing bad things, but a good person that has a disorder that, that uh, creates these mood disruptions and from that misperceptions on the part of the individual in terms of understanding those consequences and and making uh, good choices. So when mm. people hear that, I think I think it helps bring down a lot of tension, a lot of sh- fear, and uh, you know, and it really does. Uh, I think attack uh, the, the the whole specter of stigma right off the bat.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things in that list that people s- talk about is there seems to be a high correlation of substance abuse, often when a person is in the throes of an undiagnosed bipolar disorder. What do you think is the reason for that, Michael?
3: Um, I believe mostly self-medication. I think Mm -hmm. that whether people realize it or not, um, as they're going through it, the very high um, correlation, or sometimes we call it co-occurrence or comorbidity, morbidity meaning illness, um, of bipolar and substance abuse, uh, it, first of all, is very high, higher um, than major depression alone, higher than anxiety disorders. Um, the, the incidence, uh, again, very, very high, very common, and and important with respect to being able to diagnose an underlying bipolar disorder if somebody does have a substance abuse disorder and they're going into uh, treatment or rehabilitation for that. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I think uh, to answer your question, why they co-occur so frequently, I, I think it comes down to the person, um, whether they understand it or not, they're trying to se- either self-medicate their depression, uh, maybe to some extent self-medicate some of the agitation that comes along with that dysphoric type of mania. They're in a manic episode, but they're, they're very stressed and they're very uh, irritable, they might also be self-medicating from that extent, but also we know that people in a manic state, um, because of the um, the fact that they may feel on the other side very good, they may want to extend that feeling, sort of extend mm-hmm. the manic party, if you will, um, and um, and uh, along with the fact that uh, the any concept of consequences for that use are kind of out the window at that point, point. Mm-hmm. and uh, I think those are really the the main reasons why.
2: Okay, now I'm going to put you in the spot that people have put me in, which is, so you're the parent of a 22-year-old male who is showing manic symptoms, at times has has depression, but completely feels fine, and you don't know what you're talking about. How do you, or how would you intervene to try to see if that person would seek some sort of help, or would you seek help yourself? What would you do?
3: Yeah, very often, actually, Suzanne. <clears throat> parents will contact me. Uh, parents of either uh, minor children under the age of 18, or um, uh, or adult children 18 or over. Although they may not always think of them quite as adults, technically they are, aren't they? And and for the older child, and 22 would qualify. Obviously, parents <clears throat> are especially stressed because they feel like they've lost some of that leverage to be able to compel their child into treatment. So uh, very often they'll contact me first, and we might even have a couple of sessions in my office to create a strategy that we can communicate, in this case with, with, with your 22-year-old male patient who's in denial, uh, to begin the process of communicating with that individual in, in many of the ways that I talk about in the book and how I talk about approaching that pre-stabilization phase. So it really does kind of go case by case in terms of what's important for that uh, that one individual. And to some extent, and I say this in the best, uh, most compassionate, collaborative way, uh, to leverage some of that, uh, of, of what the parents may have, whether it's uh, uh, emotional support, whether it's financial, and very often 22-year-olds do rely on their parents for some measure of financial support to to say hey you know this this is so important and it's important to be able to go and talk to the therapist about what you're going through and when 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 we do have an opportunity to set up that appointment it's kind of touch and go at first sometimes um, that individual will call and set up an appointment or my parents are kind of telling me I need to call you so I, I'm calling you um, all I try to do is to try to get the foot in the door so to speak that individual mm-hmm. look there's no obligation. Let's talk about your life. Let's talk about the things that are concerning you right now, um, whether we talk about bipolar mood swings or mania or depression or whatever. Let's just talk about your life and see where it takes us. So mm-hmm. we, have to, mm-hmm. we have to begin that process in sort of small, very attainable kind of ad- objectives that that individual can sign on to. And yeah, it, there's varying degrees of that early success, but we never give up. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes that 22-year-old may not come to see me until he's 23 or 23-and-a-half 23 right. or 24. Yes. But, but if we, we're persistent with that <clears throat> process, that person will eventually, I think, see and recognize that, hey, I don't have to be afraid of treatment. Now, if I just say really quickly, if it's a more dire situation, uh, and more immediate, and uh, particularly if, if suicide is uh, is in the picture, then we, then we're talking about hospitalization and right. collaborating uh, collaborating with uh, an inpatient facility representative to 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 make that a more urgent situation. And we should never forget that possibility as well.
2: I'm so glad you shared that. I also mm-hmm. love the message that whether it's a spouse or family members to get support for themselves makes their interaction with their loved one that much better because it drops down their feeling of being isolated and panicked. So um, I love that approach of them reaching out and then possibly using that as a bridge to getting you connected with the person or someone else connected. Um, Now, how can people find you and the book, Michael? Okay,
3: great. And, you know, earlier I I think you mentioned about BipolarNetwork.com. Uh, that in the Bipolar Network uh, Facebook page is a place where people can get information and share stories or listen to other people's stories online, so to speak. Um, now, the book itself has a website, owningbipolar.com, where you can learn more about the book, and you, there's a link uh, to order it as well. And it's, other than that, it's available in all the usual online and, uh, retailers, and Barnes & Noble and Amazon and Target stores carries the book. Um, and various other places and if you just want to know about me and my practice that's michaelpippich.com as well so any one of those places and um, you can get uh, more information about what I do and about the book and bipolar uh, more broadly as well
2: Mm -hmm. Michael I want to thank you for coming on Psych Up Live and for all that you do in the area of bipolar disorder I think even this show helps people to own bipolar disorder and reduce some of the stigma, <clears throat> and increase the treatment success with really some wonderful, creative people. So I want to thank you again for coming on.
3: Thank you so much, Suzanne, for having me. It was a pleasure.
2: I want to thank my listeners. <clears throat> you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, on the podcast app, your iPhone, or on iTunes under Voice America, Psych Up Live. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next week, please take care. Thanks and be listening.